Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Nutrient-dense food. It's a big topic in regenerative agriculture. It's just one of the many goals of improved soil health, and it's so very important to our own human health. But how do we quantify it? What do we know about it, and how can we identify the practices and systems that will improve nutrient-dense food? Well, our guest today is doing just that. Dr. Stefan Van Vliet is a nutrition scientist and metabolomics expert in the Stedman Nutrition and Metabolism Center at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Van Vliet's research is performed at the nexus of agriculture and human health. He routinely collaborates with farmers, ecologists, and agricultural scientists to study the critical links between agriculture production systems and methods and the nutrient density of food and human health. Dr. Van Vliet uses high-throughput metabolomic techniques to study the presence of bioactive compounds in the whole food matrix and their impacts on human metabolic health. Dr. Van Vliet, we really appreciate you joining us today. The work you're doing and the fact that you're working with and alongside farmers and growers to conduct this research is really exciting. Can you tell us how you started down this journey? Absolutely. So I'm originally trained as a human nutrition scientist with an, uh, with an interest in, uh, in, uh, in human physiology, specifically uh, uh, muscle metabolism, but also whole body metabolism and uh, how the foods that we eat can, uh, can, can impact our health and, uh, and our muscle mass. And uh, a lot of my work was focused on, uh, on some of the secondary metabolites in, in the whole food matrix, uh, particularly in, in foods such as uh, uh, meat and milk and eggs, but also in, in plant proteins. And what I found in my work was an important role of these, these, what we sometimes call secondary metabolites, though I don't really like to call them secondary because it implies they're not important, and they, they certainly are. Um, what I found a role for, for these bioactive compounds in, uh, in improving uh, uh, muscle mass, but also metabolic health. So then naturally I got interested in it. Now, what is the way that we can improve the, the presence of these bioactive compounds in foods. And that is obviously from the ground up through, through food production, agricultural production. And so as I further gone along in my career, I got interested in, in really making that connection between agriculture and human health, because much uh, similar to, to many of my colleagues uh, who study diseases of dietary origin that, uh, that are mostly traced in, in, in dietary roots, I particularly got interested in, uh, in, in rather than only treating uh, those diseases with, with pharmaceuticals, but rather try and actually preemptively uh, uh, address these diseases through the foods that we eat and how the, does the way that we produce food, how does that impact our health? And that's, that's how I got interested and, uh, and started to work together with farmers and agricultural scientists. And we're really starting to build up the line of work right now. That is awesome. I love to hear the silos coming down. And, uh, you know, too often we're forgetting that connection from the soil all the way through um, the human body. So that is incredible. So some of the origins of the work that you've done, you know, really we haven't been able to do this work until the recent, you know, probably 10 years, correct? Uh, what are some of the technologies that have come along that have enabled you to 
test for or quantify these secondary metabolites and, and the other work that you're doing. Is, it, is that true? Is it not until recent that we haven't been able to really identify some of these things? Uh, yeah, that's definitely some technological advancements in, uh, in mass spectrometry that, uh, that we use, uh, which uh, allows you to identify a large number of compounds. Uh, the applications I particularly use are sometimes called food metabolomics or nutritional metabolomics. Now, what metabolomics does, it, it looks at uh, expanded pools of nutrients. So we tend to typically be focused on a limited amount of nutrients. So there's uh, 150 nutrients that are routinely tracked in the USDA database but only 13 of those appear routinely on nutrition labels. And those are the things that consumers often see, which is things like protein, uh, serogovitamins and minerals, carbohydrates, fat, and then we may have a, a, a sort of a designation between saturated fat and, 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 and polyunsaturated fat, right? But what we use uh, in our metabolomics techniques, we really look at extended pools of nutrients because the, the dietary metabolome or what's sometimes referred to as the human food dome contains an estimated 70,000 unique metabolites. Um, and I would say that we're only scratching the surface. And I'm sure if there's more technological advancement, we, we start to get a, a bigger or larger appreciation of, of the importance of various of these compounds. And, and many of these compounds, they're often underappreciated when we discuss nutrition and human health. But there is definitely a documentation and, and more and more literature coming out on uh, on how these these uh, uh, metabolites can can impact human health, and that, that could be things like uh, like phytochemicals, like polyphenols or terpenes, or also other uh, uh, non-protein amino acids such as taurine or or anserine, uh, cysteamine, which are common antioxidants found, uh, uh, for instance, exclusively in animal foods and and, and not in plant-based foods. Whereas there's many other phytochemicals found exclusively in plant foods, but not in animal foods. So we have about 13 that we pay attention to, maybe, on a label. There's 70 that were commonly known. And now, through your work and others, we, we know that there's 70,000 or so, and, and probably counting, of various compounds. And so um, you need to have a big notebook when you go to the grocery store, right? And, and to know, <laughs> know which one of the 70,000, to make sure you're consuming a balanced diet? Or is there maybe a little better approach to doing this? Instead of looking at the nutrient paying more attention to how the food was raised or the post-processing of the nutrient? How, how, do, how do people take, uh, well, first off, um, we're going to have to have a spelling quiz at the end of this, you know, with to tocopherols, uh, uh, you know, all, all these kind of things. So there's lots of things for people to learn. But what are, what are some ways that um, uh, consumers can uh, take advantage of the work that you're doing? So I think it's mostly viewing this, uh, I think we need to move away. In nutritional science, we tend to uh, link uh, single nutrients to outcomes of, uh, of uh, health and, and disease. And we need to start thinking these in terms of, of dietary patterns and food groups, because often we uh, lay, link things like saturated fat or sugar with metabolic disease, or even single foods like eggs. One week you might read that an egg is, uh, is causing a heart disease, and the next week uh, eating eggs is uh, completely fine for our health again. And a lot of this is, is, is also rooted in the dietary patterns. And because we do not consume nutrients like saturated fat or, or, or sugar, we consume foods, and we consume these foods as part of dietary patterns and certain food groups. So I think it's important for the, for the consumer to, to realize that, that there's a, a lot of overlap between healthy dietary patterns, um, which are 
predominantly made out of, I would say, uh, whole foods sources. So limit uh, limits the, the amount of packaged foods and and mostly choose uh, unprocessed whole foods. And and in that case, uh, yeah, choose choose a variety of uh, of, of these uh, different food groups. And and most of all, pick a dietary pattern and and types of foods that you actually enjoy eating. I think that's more important because recent work that, for instance, came out is, is that uh, it was a large scale study that uh, studied that use metabolomics and look at the metabolites that circulate in our blood. And they, and, and, uh, they looked at uh, things like the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet, the plant-based diet, uh, uh, all kinds of different sort of whole food diets. And it was almost impossible to distinguish between these diets when you looked at the, the metabolites that circulate in, in the blood. So important to note is that uh, uh, what consumers can take away from this is, is, is selecting a, a, a healthful dietary pattern. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you know, some of the work that one of your um, partners did, uh, you know, with animals, uh, Dr. Fred Provenzen, what he did, what animals choose, what they need, it, because they know what they need to meet their satiety and, and, and all these secondary nutrients. The problem is, is we've become so untuned, uh, is the word, uh, to knowing what we need. So I, I like your comment about eat, eat what you like, uh, but as long as we've, we've divorced ourselves enough from marketing and or, you know, bad habits... Uh, you know what our body does know what it needs if we can overcome those. And I, yeah, no, absolutely, and and that is obviously very hard in our current food environment because uh, and 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 perhaps one of the reasons why we uh, tend to overeat on ultra processed foods. Because I do want to add to that comment you said, eat what you like. There is there's obviously nuances in that because it means that uh, you're consuming a, a highly uh, processed diet and uh, uh, that is not ideal, of course, for for our health. But but yeah, you do see that. That we probably still have somewhat of that that innate response because we do tend to overconsume. If you have people uh, consume a sort of nutrient dense whole foods diet versus a uh, unpro- uh, versus a more processed diet, you see that people overeat 500 kilocalories. Now, in part, it could be hyperpalatability, but it could also be similar to what you see with animals: is they overeat to, to try to get all their nutrients in, and perhaps we still have some of that uh, some of that. Uh, uh, response to and we do not see the normal satiety responses that you might see when you eat more uh, more more unprocessed food so I, I definitely think that we sort of have that nutritional wisdom still but we have to dig very deep for it uh, to uh, to get that back well i would like to, to dive in here real quick um well before we move on um, i want to go to the farmer side kim is there anything else on on the consumer side that you wanted to touch upon before we we dive into on the farmer side? No, I think it's just important to draw out that there are so many messages out there from a consumer standpoint. I've been doing a lot of uh, label reading in the last month or so for my own personal journey, and it is confusing and labeling is confusing, so I'm excited that you're kind of delving into some of that. I appreciate it very much. Well, I, I think long-term, looking at the process of how the animal was raised is likely more important than the than the label that appears on the package. I, I think bottom line would would you say that's a, a take home point from the research you've done so far? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, uh, and and those are some of the nuances that you might not get on a, on a nutrition label, right? Because uh, 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 and and how the animals are raised and how you also how crops are grown. It's it's uh, and how your your fruits and vegetables are grown. That's that's definitely important. And that's an important uh, takeaway and. 
that is perhaps something you cannot always capture on a label, though I'm sure as time wears on, we would see some uh, like certification uh, uh, coming in that uh, uh, that would maybe uh, uh, clarify some of that. Or, or, but I do think it's important to, to become connected again with your farmer and, and local food systems to just know where your food comes from. I think that's probably the best way of, uh, of, of trying to... Uh, find some of these connections uh, with uh, with how your food is raised and uh, and and uh, what ends up uh, subsequently on your plate. And I, I think to uh, switch now to the farmer side and production side, you know, we've always been focused on yield, okay, whether that's, you know, milk pounds per day or uh, pounds of grain harvested per acre or, or meat pounds uh, gain per day. You know, that's always been our metric because we didn't know these other things existed, and really the market has yet to put a value on these secondary metabolites and all the other nutritional things. And, and it is a common practice to, in the dairy industry, for example, dry matter intake is to be maximized. So in other words, the total volume and calories that the animal eats, we try to maximize dry matter intake in order to maximize milk output. And, and that's a very common thing. We did go down the road with a, a local company here called AgriKing that focuses on satiety, so meeting mineral nutrition needs and other types of needs to decrease the dry matter intake per day so that we improve feed efficiency. Okay, that was their goal. So rather than having 54 pounds of dry matter intake, can we get the same milk production with 48 pounds of dry matter intake as an example? And uh, so it can be done both ways. We can change those diets for those animals to cause them to overeat or to, you know, eat more of a, quote unquote, what we think is a balanced diet. But I, I think, you know, that's, that's where the industry's at today, right? So, you know, that's how we're getting uh, uh, paid as a conventional farmer is, is for pounds and, and for production. How do we capture that value in your mind of all these extra things that are being produced in, let's say, a high-diversity, well-managed, pasture-based diet compared to a conventional CAFO operation with a um, TMR-type diet? Yeah, I think most of the opportunity is in direct marketing to consumer and, and really uh, educating the consumer about uh, uh, some of the benefits that, uh, that, that this may have because there's various studies that have been shown that if consumers become aware of the, the health benefits and maybe some of the sustainability metrics that went into producing that, that consumers are willing to pay an extra premium to that. And I think that's uh, uh, something that uh, uh, has to come out of, uh, of, of both industry and, and, and the farmers. Um, but I do think that, uh, yeah, there are definitely opportunities uh, for that. So what, what you're saying is when Steve Jobs uh, came out with the iPhone, he just didn't have it produced in China and bring it to the United States and then hope somebody would buy it. You know, he, he, yeah. he created the whole marketing platform, uh, demonstrated the value all the way through to the end consumer and people still pay a lot more for an iPhone compared to some other functional thing that can get the job done for less money. But yeah. because of the, he created that value. I think it's interesting as farmers, we create a product and we expect people to buy it then we complain that they don't give us enough for it. And <laughs> I don't know why um, we, we don't take more active involvement in marketing what we, what we raise and differentiating it and, and connecting with consumers. 
Yeah, no, I agree because farmers uh, can be proud of the the, the products that they uh, that they produce. And if you end up uh, producing a very nutrient dense uh, product and 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 marketing that to consumers, and that's that's sort of also the case. And I'm from the Netherlands my, myself, and uh, in Europe we we produce artisanal cheeses, right, and uh, uh, other uh, specifically dairy products. What we're very proud of, and and uh, they're marketed in a way uh, uh, that uh, that that the consumer is is willing to. Uh, uh, to, to pay a higher price for them. And what we can also see it in that way, yes, perhaps it is more expensive, but you also get more nutrients, right? Because uh, um, as, as also some of the work showed, if you look at purely uh, cost per, per calories, and yeah, of course, uh, very ultra processed foods, like things like sugar are the cheapest. But I mean, if you look at it uh, uh, per, per amount of nutrients that you get, then something like liver all of a sudden becomes very cheap, right? And and the same could be uh, case could be made if you have uh, very nutrient dense animal foods like uh, like like beef or pork or or eggs or, uh, or or dairy, because we do not per se have a, a shortage of of calories in the U.S., but we often do see, and in, in also in the U.S., but also in Western countries in general that we uh, do not reach the, the levels of micronutrients that we historically consume. So I think uh, that is, uh, is definitely important to keep in mind. You'll get more nutrients at, uh, at a lesser amount of calories. So talk to us a little bit about the, the research study uh, that you did. And I'm referring to the, the one uh, health-promoting phytonutrients are higher in grass-fed meat and milk. Um, you look not only at a, a TMR-based diet where versus a grass-fed diet, but you looked at basically two types of grass-fed diets. One is, uh, you know, a very monoculture pasture versus a high-diversity pasture and high management, so likely daily moves or, or very frequent moving versus a set-stock-type pasture. And, you know, first off, how did you have that inspiration to to try those two different pastures? Because, you know, when you, when you look at the label at the at the grocery store, it's going to be grass fed on either one of those. Right. And, um, you know, how did, how did you come about doing that? And, and just what are some of the things that surprised you in the differences, um, between those two or, or between all three? Yeah, no. So we are working with several farmers that, uh, that, that have introduced a lot of biodiversity into, into their pastures. And, uh, uh, this can be things like, uh, uh like having like native perennials or, or, uh, grazing cover crops. And, uh, we sort of, what the farmer at least sort of uh, empirically noted is that, uh, the animals tend to be healthier. Uh, uh they tend to perform better. Uh, their daily gain is better. Um, so we started to look in, into that. Is that well, will that also have an, a positive impact on uh, on the nutrient density, right? Because that's the, the relationship we often hear between healthy soils, uh, plant diversity, and healthy animals, and will that really lead to a more nutrient dense product? So we started to looking looking at those things versus more of like what what as you mentioned, uh, more of like a classic monoculture uh, grass, like like a, a Bermuda grass or a rye grass that only consists of maybe. Uh, uh, one or two grasses that uh, that are uh, are produced and maybe more uh, yeah conventional grass-fed beef production, which both of them can be labeled grass-fed beef, um, and that we compared to to grain-fed beef. And what we really saw was sort of a, a spectrum uh, where um, the animals that are raised on more biodiverse pastures have higher amounts and a wider variety of phytochemicals that are come con concentrated in the meat and milk. And this may be uh, 
five to 15 fold higher, depending on the phytonutrient when compared to a more uh, monoculture uh, type of grass finishing. And many of the phytonutrients that are concentrated in the meat and milk on, on uh, grass finished animals remain absent or in very low concentrations in, uh, in grain fed meat. And uh, one thing that uh, is also, also noted from the literature is that obviously all animals or all beef cattle start, uh, start on grass and they are finished then in, in a feedlot for, for several months. But you do see this rapid decrease in the phytochemicals already within 30 to 60 days and further decreased in, the, in 90 days. So really the main takeaway of that was, uh, is that a grass-fed beef is not grass-fed beef, is, it's not grass-fed beef. There's a whole spectrum of grass-fed beef, um, but generally more biodiverse pastures uh, tend to equal higher amounts of phytochemicals in the, in, in the meat and milk of animals. And, and important to note is that also, and I think that's, is that the animals are able to upcycle um, certain phytonutrients from plants that you and I otherwise not have access to because of our digestive system. And I think that's also a main, a main part because we did compare it and to, to plant foods, obviously, because the, the main question that, uh, that we get when we do this work is, well, do we get meaningful amounts? Well, plant foods certainly contain higher amounts of phytochemicals overall but we can get various unique phytochemicals that we would otherwise not have access to. And we can still have a meaningful contribution to overall dietary intake in our, in our diet. So if we even consume phytochemically rich plants, but then also phytochemically rich animal foods, it overall contributes to, uh, to the diet. And a parallel is for instance, zinc is uh, mainly obtained from, from things like meat, right? But legumes can still contribute meaningfully to total zinc intake in the diet. So, and I sort of see phytonutrients in the same way where maybe plants have the leaning role, but animal foods can be another way of, of increasing uh, the phytonutrient content of our diet. And, and part of the problem of that is a lot of times many nutrients within a plant are complexed or, or chelated with uh, certain compounds that just make them very indigestible to a non-ruminant. Okay. So we're not ruminants. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, cows, sheep, goats are, and they can take an, an oxalate, for an example, uh, like a calcium oxalate would be very poorly digestible to a person, but, uh, you throw it through the room, uh, the rumen and uh, microbial breakdown and, and, and uh, all of a sudden magically it becomes available because it's, it's not tightly bound. Uh, so, you know, again, a lot of times when we're looking at nutrition, we see the calcium, but we don't see the, you know, is it an oxide? Is it a, a carbonate? Is it a, you know, what, what is it uh, attached to? So that's fascinating. And the five to 15 times, Kim, difference between, imagine, you know, cows on a grass-fed, like brome grass pasture around here would be pretty uh, typical, or as you go south of fescue pasture, mm-hmm. you know, uh, versus cover crops. And the funny part is, is I actually get a little bit of pushback from consumers because we feed cover crops. And they're like, well, you know, that's not, that's not really grass. But the reality is, is they're eating a 16-way cover crop cocktail out there, and they get to eat whatever they want. And um, I think that is far, far better than just, uh, you know, most of our pastures are cool-season grasses, which are great until about the 1st of June. Then they just plummet to, you know, because of the heat, um, they're not very digestible. They're not very – they're not growing actively. So when you don't have an actively growing plant, you don't have active nutrition um, 
contribution, correct? So, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I agree. And, and that is also interesting. And, and you mentioned it going on to the, the cover crop. You often see, think of, of uh, cows that they, they, they are grass eaters, right? And then goats and sheep are more, more forbs and shrubs. But the reality is that there's a, there's a lot of overlap and, and uh, even cows uh, consume things that you may not expect them to consume. One example that I'd like to give you is that uh, we, we visited a, a farmer up in, uh, in Idaho. His name is Glenn Alzinga, who uh, raises his, uh, his cattle on, uh, in, in the mountains there. And he always uh, is still surprised, I think, uh, by what his animals consume, because they're not just consuming grass. They consume all kinds of uh, uh, shrubs and forbs and, and other things and, and flowers that uh, you could technically say that is not grass fed, but uh, uh, with with the animals consuming uh, 150 uh, different plants, uh, that was definitely uh, and and we uh, analyzed uh, that beef and it was definitely very phytochemically rich. So uh, more phytochemically rich versus maybe what you described, like uh, uh, finishing the animal on on, uh, on a monoculture uh, uh, grass pasture. Did you spend much time looking at management uh, and its effect on? on phytonutrients as far as, um, let's say, you know, people who put animals out in a set stock versus, uh, managed grazing, holistic grazing, you pick the term, but essentially, um, mob grazing where you, you move them across the landscape more competitively. Yeah, we have not, uh, uh that, that's one of the next questions that we have because now Good. initially we've been, uh, uh, sort of discovering all these, these phytochemicals. And then I must say, when I started this work, I was also somewhat surprised because uh, uh, it's not something you typically think of. I, I analyzed the, the samples using metabolomics, and I was like, uh, "What are all these plant compounds doing in my beef?" Right? And uh, uh, did, did some grass samples make it in there? But of course not. The grass made it into the into the animal, right? And that's how the phytochemicals ended up. But yeah, now I think the next step would be what is the influence impact on the on management practices? But I mean, yeah, I would hypothesize that uh, with with continuous grazing uh, and, and, and unmanaged grazing, as you uh, sort of uh, degrade the lands a little bit, and, and you can see that also probably just already already visually that, yeah, I would hypothesize based on that, that more of a, a holistic management with, uh, with uh, maybe amp grazing or, or any other uh, type of uh, uh, like, uh, uh, yeah, well-managed grazing that that would have a beneficial impact because uh, we, we do know Kind of that that has a beneficial impact on uh, on, on vegetation right and, uh, and and pasture quality so and, and definitely higher pasture quality um, we have found to, uh, to to translate into increased phytochemical richness so yes so to make a long story short no we cannot directly link management practices to the phytochemical richness of meat and milk at this point but I would hypothesize that uh, that will have a, a beneficial impact in uh, in more well managed uh, grazing systems. Because essentially the, the management practices are going to contribute to soil quality and in return, you know, come back to when we can have higher stocking densities and more diversity, then it automatically would feed through. But that'll be interesting follow-up work. We're going to have to have you back, okay? When, when you get that completed, we'll have you back and we'll, we'll hear what the results are. But, um, okay, so we got all these phytonutrients and you didn't accidentally uh, spill grass inside the meat samples when you were doing your... <laughs> Metabolic. Yeah, I don't believe so. No, no, no. <laughs> so you let's get washed off. You weren't cheating, and no. <laughs> so now tell 
uh, tell everyone where most of these nutrients are stored within the within the meat, and uh, this is this is going to shock some people. Yeah, well, no, a lot of it is stored in the in the fat in the fat of a lot of these uh, phytonutrients are. Uh, are fat soluble oh, so uh, gotta eat your fat yes oh you're not yes. oh my goodness see the number one number one thing that we've been taught to do is what trim the fat off but i guess when it's when it's in a CAFO environment that's probably a good thing right because some of the uh inflammatory type things is uh is in the fat and we don't want to consume that but you're saying when you when you're eating grass-finished uh meats you want to eat the fat Yes, is that, absolutely. Is that, okay, so how problematic is that? Because a person who's eating a grass finish typically is a health-conscious person. Is that is that a real mental barrier to get over, do you think? I, yeah, I'm not sure because I think if you're already a health-conscious eater, you, you probably know the importance of, uh, of omega-3 fatty acids and perhaps also the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6s, which I must say also, and this is work that's been done by uh, – uh, Jason Roundtree's group up in uh, Michigan State, uh, he had a paper published also which showed that grass-fed beef is not grass-fed beef because some of the grass-fed beef had a, a sort of a one-to-one ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, but some of them, uh, I think it was as high as 1 to 28, which is uh, more in, in grass-fed beef, which is more similar to what you find in, uh, in, in grain-finished, uh, in, in CAFO-produced uh, uh, beef, right? So, I would say that most health, and it also points out again that it's good to know where your where your meat came from and how it was produced, and to uh, to make connections with local farmers or nowadays with the internet. Obviously, you can sort of figure out how uh, how the animal was uh, was raised and finished. But to get get back to that point, yes, a lot of it is is found in uh, in, uh, in in is fat, is fat soluble, and I do think for that reason maybe the the people that are health conscientious. Uh, would would hopefully be aware of that and uh, and and not have a barrier to uh, to to consume uh, to not consume the fat because that is obviously also a very flavorful portion right if you have like a nice uh, uh, yellowish marbling on on, on the ribeye uh, that would be a shame to, uh, to to get rid of so talk to us a little bit about the phytonutrients and you just touched on it there them being fat soluble uh, which would the mechanism would be to deposit into the fat. Why are they in the the fat portion versus the protein portion of uh, muscle meat and, and those kind of things? How how does that mechanism work? Yeah, so well, I must admit there are certainly also uh, several bioactive compounds that uh, can be found in uh, in in the muscle uh, uh, portion. Uh, those are things like. Uh, uh, like taurine or cysteamine or anserine, which are also common antioxidants found. And uh, one of the things that we're uh, hopefully investigating in the future is that uh, does uh, the way that we finish animals also have an impact on, on those things. But yes, um, I mean, if you're free to look at the uh, like carotenoids and the cofferols, uh, uh, like the uh, vitamin A and vitamin E, which are fat soluble uh, uh, vitamins, I think that's what, uh, what most listeners uh, know. Uh, those are, uh, are, are common phytonutrients, but uh, many of the other phytonutrients are, are also fat soluble. So they are, uh, meaning that they are, are stored in the, in, in the fat uh, portion. And, uh, and, and for, that, uh, yeah, for that reason, it is important to, uh, to, to consume uh, the, the, the fattier portions of meat. And then also I want to highlight is, and that is, that is also interesting, and we were doing more work with organ meats now too, because organ meats in general, store also very high amounts of, uh, of, of phytonutrients and, uh, and also high amounts of, uh, of omega-3 fatty acids, for instance. The amount of uh, DHA, which is an omega-3 fatty acid, 
in muscle meal, meat is several milligrams, but uh, in an equal um, uh, portion, so every, let's say a four ounce portion of, of muscle meat. But if you look at it in uh, liver, it might be uh, around a uh, hundred milligrams, which is actually, you're starting to get uh, up there to some of the, the fish uh, uh, amounts, maybe not so much salmon, but definitely some of the uh, uh, sources such as cod or shrimp or, or, or other uh, uh, white fish that, uh, and it's also important to, to know that uh, uh, a lot of these are also stored in, uh, in, in organ meat, which could be another avenue of getting uh, a lot of these, these nutrients. And also, as I always like to think is that it is maximizing the, the, the animal, right? I mean, it's, it's also, uh, uh, we have to, uh, in order for us to live, something else has to die, but that can be a beautiful thing, especially if we, if we respect that and, uh, and, and get the most out of it. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about the organ meats, because there's many of them are 10 to a hundred times more concentrated in these, these, uh, nutrients, like you're saying, uh, yet the price on them, you know, we sell our, um, I think we sell our heart at five fifty a pound, liver three fifty a pound, but ground beef is seven fifty a pound, and uh, so what we started doing is people wanted these things, but they really didn't know how to prepare them. Uh, so we we took a cue from um, you know ancestral meats has it in the store, but we actually create a ground beef blend, to where it's ninety percent ground beef, seven percent liver, three percent heart, and. The nice part is by adding 10% organ meats in there, we're essentially doubling, um, you know, the nutritional value of that ground beef. And, and yeah, 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 it's small I, enough I, people can kind of sneak it in there, right? <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I agree. That, that's how I feed it to my family because uh, I uh, put it in, uh, in with uh, our ground beef and uh, you don't taste it. But yeah, you, you say double the amount of nutrients, but... I would say maybe even 10 times if you have 10%, because uh, a lot of it, as you mentioned, appears in like, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes a hundredfold higher amounts, right? And uh, uh, so that's definitely a good way of, of, of getting in, in the phytonutrients. And uh, yeah, a lot of it, you know, they, we talked about the coffrols and carotenoids, but I think what is also interesting is, is polyphenols. We think of polyphenols. What do we associate polyphenols with? We associate those with uh, with plant foods and uh, and 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 things like uh, and maybe also things like coffee, for instance. Uh, uh, but what we what we uh, what other groups have found, uh, uh, and this was uh, actually a study that was uh, done in in Mexico with uh, with goats, is what they found was that uh, uh, certain compounds like gallic acid, which is commonly found in garlic. Uh, chlorogenic acid, which is commonly found in coffee, quercetin, which is commonly found in onions. They actually also appear in, in milk and, and some of these compounds, uh, which, was, which was interesting to see in that study and which we hope to also uh, follow up here with uh, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, grazing systems, is that things like chlorogenic acid, so think of a cup of milk versus a cup of green tea in certain green teas. We think of green teas as very high in these, uh, in these amounts, uh, in these uh, polyphenols and these phytonutrients. But a cup of milk can actually provide certain uh, of these, these phytochemicals in also very high concentrations that, that, that may even be comparable. So we don't think of that. Now, I certainly don't want to say that overall uh, milk is more phytochemically rich than green tea because it is uh, five to 20 fold higher overall green tea. But what it does illustrate is that we can get substantial amounts uh, of, of certain, certain polyphenols in our diet by eating animal foods and by using the animal to upcycle these uh, uh, in, into, our, uh, into our food system. 
Well, there's there's a joke in the livestock industry. You know, the type of fence that it takes to hold a goat is one that holds air. Okay, so probably what happened with your sample set is the goats got over into the garlic field and the onion field and and the coffee plantation, and that's that's what created that. See, they're they're over there consuming what they somewhere they shouldn't be, right? Yeah, so they might uh, the, the goats might be drinking coffee, uh, and uh, we're, uh, we're we're using that. No, but that's that's very good. But that also points out again that if you after you have harvested uh, certain crops and you feed those residues to the animal, that can uh, be another way. And that's also interesting that we uh, that I'm particularly interested in in the future because I don't think, uh, I'm personally not per se against uh, uh, crop feeding or, or anything, right? I mean, I think feeding uh, grains or, or, or agro-waste byproducts is as old as mankind, as old as animal husbandry, right? Um, so if we, we produce so much agri-waste like, like peels and, 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 uh, other, uh, uh, like just grain un- residues, un- yeah, unsized yeah, fruit, you know, fruit that isn't of size that can be sold, you know, um, that's left in the field or yeah, there's, there's all kinds of opportunities, uh, you know, almond holes, for example, um, they're used a lot in the dairy industry in California. But no, that's a great point. And like you were saying, um, you referred to some research that you were aware of, and and I've seen it out of uh, Georgia, California, uh, and a few other states that animals on a grain diet that switch to a grass-fed diet, you can't hardly tell a metabolite difference in them after 30 days uh, compared to the the control group that was grass-finished their entire life and vice versa. You know, finish them last 30 days on grain, and you can't tell them the different from a feedlot animal. So it's it's really, you know, uh, using that in a good management sense. If you were out on corn stover, for example, getting grain, but then come back to high diversity diet for 30, 60 days, that 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 fat profile changes back. Um, what's your experience with that? What have you seen on how that how quickly that fat uh, profile can change? And is there an importance to on grass fed? that we're harvesting those animals, timing the harvest of them on green grass or on high diversity cover crops or um, talk, talk about that shift a little yeah. bit that's going on inside the animal. Yeah. So just to uh, over, if you look at it in, in the meat, all right, to start with that, uh, it, it's a matter of, of months. It, it, it slowly accumulates. And so um, now I must say that, if you put an animal on a total mixed ration uh, uh, and, and really put it into a feedlot, uh, then what we do notice in terms of phytochemicals, you do see already a rapid decrease. So about half uh, after 30 days. Um, but that is not to say that if you uh, offer free choice of grains on pasture uh, and, and, and still have that, that biodiversity on pasture and then feed limited amounts of grains, then you, I would say, in terms of fat content, we have not uh, studied this in phytonutrients, but in terms of fat content, you cannot tell the difference. Indeed, you, you, you barely, can, uh, barely can tell the difference. So feeding limited amounts of grains uh, on, on, as part of like biodiverse grazing definitely could, uh, could, could be a, a good thing. Uh, in terms of milk, it goes very quick. It is uh, within, within days or uh, that, uh, that you can uh, see the effect of, uh, of, of diet uh, on there. So, so maybe in the case of milk, you can rapidly uh, undo or redo whatever it is that, uh, that, that you want to do with, uh, with feeding. With meat, it tends to be a matter of, uh, of months. Okay. 
Talk, you know, and another avenue that comes up a little bit in a lot of these scenarios is the animal stress. And now I don't mean stress from handling. I mean, that's, that's one, one stress source, but it's not a constant stress source. What I'm talking about is the animal being able to uh, exercise it and display its natural behavior. Okay, so to the degree that it's not able to um, mimic its natural um, God-given behaviors, how much does that affect um, some of these metabolites and, and what's going on within the animal and how it processes those things through the liver and the kidneys when it's in experiencing a less than natural state? Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, an interesting way of looking at it. So originally, I'm trained as a as a human nutrition scientist. So I tend to look at these things through sort of the also the the human health view. So what I did with with the data, the meta- metabolomics data that I had, I uh, analyzed that. Normally, how I would analyze. Uh, so in in my lab, we sometimes have athletes in, or we have people that have uh, metabolic disease in, such as uh, diabetes or cardiovascular disease, and uh, we we take their blood and we run metabolomics and then we look at uh, certain uh, uh, disease pathways and, and, and so far they are enriched and we can come up with a phenotype and with the athletes we obviously see a very healthy phenotype whereas people with metabolic disease you, you see you need a phenotype of metabolic disease based on the metabolite profiles so we analyzed that sort of in a similar way and took a similar viewpoint looking at uh, meat from uh, animals finished in CAFOs versus animals finished on, on biodiverse pastures. And what you can sort of draw these parallels is that the animals finished on biodiverse pastures look more of like uh, the healthy athletes that I get into my lab versus whereas the, the grain fat animal looks more, shows early signs of like metabolic syndrome. So if you look at, if you analyze uh, the, the disease pathways that way, so that is an, an interesting way of looking at it. And now, uh, that does not mean causation, obviously, because I cannot say from that, okay, if you're eating a, uh, an animal that, that shows uh, signs of metabolic syndrome or stress versus an animal that does not show that looks like a healthy metabolic phenotype, looks like an athlete. But at least it's good to ponder that, okay, if we then eat that meat from these two different animals, these two different phenotypes, how is that going to impact our health? And that is really an, uh, really an, an important question. And, and a good way of thinking about this from a consumer standpoint, too, is that the, the grass-fed animals look like athletes. And then at least the grain-fed meat that we have, and, and, and I know there's tremendous differences between different feedlots, so I don't want to uh, say that this is the case for all, but some of the, the data that I have seen, uh, there are definitely, uh, yes, early signs of metabolic syndrome in the grain-fed animals. And I think, to your point, that could be related to not being able to self-select a diet or, or express natural behavior. That, that could be the case because... Uh, we didn't measure it uh, in uh, in our study, but there have been other studies uh, showing uh, indeed increased signs of stress or, or cortisol, as well as glucose levels. And, and elevated glucose levels is also something you'd see in uh, in, in humans that uh, have uh, uh, yeah early signs of diabetes. Hmm. Very very interesting. It all works together, doesn't it? And it, it's fascinating that you've taken this time and and, and researched and quantified. Uh, what's going on out there. So of everything that you did in this study, was, was there anything that, that really surprised you, stood out to you, um, just those real aha moments in, in when you were uh, pursuing this? 
Yeah, so well, the biggest aha moment must say coming back to the fact that there are so many different plant compounds in uh, in, in, in animal foods. So that was uh, definitely eye-opening because, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are some farmers that are, are aware of that and, and some scientists that are aware of that, but even, even amongst the scientific community and let alone the consumer, yeah, we don't think of, uh, we don't associate that with uh, with animal foods, right? So uh, I think that was also my biggest aha moment, uh, seeing all these all these phytochemicals appear in the, in, in the meat. And then another interesting study that we did recently uh, also, and that data will come out uh, in the next few months, is that uh, we compared uh, uh, one of the grass-fed beef uh, that, that we had, uh, a biodiverse grass-fed beef, to um, a novel plant-based meat alternative. Uh, because they have similar nutrition facts panels. So coming back to where we started, similar nutrition facts panels, right? It's for the consumer. It's hard to see uh, if they are, it, it might appear like they're nutritionally interchangeable based on, on these limited amounts of nutrients, right? It's vitamins, minerals, protein, fat, which are matched. But we run metabolomics on that too. And yes, perhaps we're kicking the open door a little bit because if you, consume, if you produce meat from a, from a soy, bean versus from an animal right from beef of course you're going to get very different uh, 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 nutritional profiles but when we sort of peel back the onion layer on that yeah we saw uh, incredible differences in terms of these uh, uh, secondary metabolites uh, which which we concluded that yeah they're not nutritionally interchangeable uh, in contrast to what you often hear with uh, with marketing is that uh, often one of the things you often hear is like meat can consists of amino acids, lipids, vitamins, and minerals, and we can produce all these things from plants, potentially, but uh, meat is much more than just amino acids, lipids, vitamins, and minerals. As I mentioned, even meat contains several thousand uh, unique metabolites that are, that are capable of impacting human health, and it's really sort of a nutritional reductionism also that uh, I, I must also say that over time, of course, I also had an aha moment as I started to use, utilize some of these techniques to find out that, okay, food sources are more complex than even I think. And I would not say that I'm an expert in any means. And the reason why I say that is because even the work that we do is scratching the surface on the complexity of, of whole food sources and the unique compounds that, uh, that, that are uh, in the whole food matrix. So I think that's uh, definitely another uh, yeah, big takeaway that, uh, Foods are ever so complex and, uh, and, and thinking that we can uh, mimic those uh, in sort of a laboratory setting or, or in, a, in a, uh, sort of an industrial setting, I do think at this point overestimates our knowledge of the whole food matrix. That's a very nice way to say that about faux meat. Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, pride and hubris to think that we can uh, uh, create something that's healthy for us. Um, you know, from by by combining uh, various uh, plants, and I understand the reasons behind it, um, but at the same time, you know, one of the main there's two there's two main driving reasons in in my mind. Uh, I'm sure there's more, but one is there is an environmental type uh, cause for it. You know, everybody's worried about cow farts. Well, when when you have the high diversity pasture, properly managed animals. The cow farts are not an issue. Uh, they have been shown over several life cycle analysis to actually put more carbon and, and methane and those type of um, compounds into the soil than they ever emit into the atmosphere. So it's actually a carbon sink, okay? But again, it has to be managed properly. But, you know, you're looking at uh, the life cycle analysis done at White Oak Pastures, three and a half pounds per, of carbon into the soil for every pound of beef. 
where a um, CAFO is emitting 35 pounds of carbon dioxide for every pound of beef. And even in there, the Beyond Burger Impossible Burger was found to emit three and a half pounds of carbon. So, you know, Will Harris says, well, for every for every faux burger that you eat, you need to eat a pound of my beef, and then you'll be carbon neutral. <laughs> so, you know, that that's one, one argument for it. The second argument is the animal welfare portion. Again, if you are putting the animal into a pasture, high-diversity, well-managed pasture situation, that animal is living the life like they were meant to live. They're having a great life, and like I like to say, only one bad day. So uh, I think that's uh, being a good steward of them. Um, but really, if you look at the work that you did with your um, research here on the metabolites, if we're raising animals the way we should, the carbon is not an issue, the welfare is not an issue, then why are we eating these faux burgers where man is creating something that we really don't know what we're doing yet? Yeah, I, I think because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the amount of grass that we've consumed here in the U.S. is, I think, is about 3% that's on the, on the market, and the other 97% comes from that from the as you mentioned the, the 35 uh, uh, pounds of, of co2 equivalent emitting beef so i i think that is why also and that's why uh, some of this work and it, and it needs to be validated and we need to do much more research in, in into sort of uh, understand some of these these nuances um but yeah i i do think it's it's a it's a matter of uh Get, getting this information out there about sustainability metrics and, and things like that, because it has been shown that consumers are willing, if they are, uh, there's a, a, it's been shown there's a lot of confusion amongst consumers, and B, if consumers become aware of these things, they are willing to pay uh, uh, a higher premium for things like grass-fed meat, and, and if that means that uh, uh, depending on, on the socioeconomic status that you may consume a little bit less, right, or, or even, even that case, well, yeah, when you find it because the nutritional density too, you're going to have you're going to meet satiety, and you're going to consume a little bit less anyway. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I think uh, I yeah. I mean, uh, we uh, we're doing satiety measures now in our nutrition human nutrition studies. I cannot say this for certain, but uh, if you were to do an analysis and uh, uh, look at the price uh, per nutrient rather than the, 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 the price for, you know, calorie or something like that and taking the cows of nutrient density, yeah, then yeah, the price goes down. And that's sort of drawing parallels to ultra processed foods versus, versus more whole foods. People always say, okay, fruits and vegetables and, and, and meat are ex more expensive than packaged foods. Yes. But the cost per nutrient is actually, if you, if you express it that way or look at it in, from a different lens, then obviously it's, uh, it's cheaper. And then just to put this in the bigger picture also is that, we may have cheap grocery bills, but mind you, the cost of cleaning up water supplies, of, of cleaning up soils, of, of cleaning up degraded lands, you and I are going to end up paying for this as the consumer, right? So we do not see this in our, uh, in our grocery bill, but we do see it in our water bill when the water supply has to be cleaned up because that is passed down back onto us. So, and that is sort of the true fruit of cost or the negative externalization of, uh, of, of, of food costs. And that is also something to consider. And obviously it becomes very complicated now because now we're in a political discussion uh, of how do we tackle that and how do we represent the true cost of food uh, in, in there. But yeah, those are important things I think that uh, uh, in, in policy, which is, we should start recognizing and, 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 and sort of keep, uh, yeah, 
not lose sight of, of the bigger picture or, uh, or sort of short-term gain. So you mentioned, you know, some of the work that you want to do in the future. What, what is, you know, what, what do you want to see in the next five, 10 years? So work, what, what's kind of your roadmap for what you hope to focus on and, and, and learn over the near future? Yeah, so in the next three years, what we're doing is uh, we're working with several uh, farmers and we're going to uh, really try to find or, or if there's if it is there or if there's an absence thereof, we're objectively testing that. But the, the, the hypothesis of our study is that uh, if we have uh, that there's a, a connection between soil health, plant health, nutrient density of meat and human health. So what we're doing is we're doing metabolomics on soil samples. We're overlaying that with the plant sample. We're overlaying that with the meat sample. We're overlaying that with the human plasma sample because you often hear uh, anecdotally this connection of healthy soils equals healthy humans. But there has not been, uh, to my knowledge, any study done that has really looked at this in, in the, along the, the same continuum because and that's coming back to working in academic silos, which is uh, uh, something that's happened in the past, is that you have maybe livestock scientists on, on one hand or animal scientists or, or ecologists on one hand that there is indication to suggest that, hey, animals that create more nutrient-dense soils have more, maybe more vitamins and minerals in their meat. But then we have the human nutrition scientists on one hand that, that have worked on things, but virtually every study that has been done with grass-fed beef has not really linked that back to the way the animal was raised, right? So uh, it's just saying, oh, aggressive beef and was finished on that, but it's not really a good insight into uh, what was the soil health of, of, of uh, uh, what the animal, the patch that the animal was raised on. What was the plant diversity and what uh, compounds did the plants contain? So we're really trying to overlay those and that will be something that we work on in the next uh, several years. And then uh, one of the other things that uh, we're interested also in is, uh, there, there's many ways we can go with this, but multi-species livestock systems, right? And, and, integ and integrative crop livestock systems. If we integrate animals and crops, do we synergistically improve both the nutrient density of the animal foods and the crops that we are growing versus if we uh, stick the animals in a monoculture or have a monoculture operation with animals and a monoculture uh, operation with, uh, with crops? Well, if we combine them, our, at least the hypothesis is one of the projects we hopefully uh, will we'll get funding for in the future is to really look at uh, diversified systems and how do these impact the nutrient density. And, and then also what many farmers do, uh, and, and you, it sounds like you have a multi-species operation, is that uh, you sort of rotate the animals amongst the, the, uh, among the system. So uh, does that also have a synergistic effect? And obviously one of the important things is you are producing probably more food per acre that way of stacking for various enterprises. So that is also something that uh, we're, uh, we're looking at in the future. And uh, yeah, that could, I could probably do that my entire career. So he asked me a five to 10 year roadmap. This could be, this could turn into a 30 year roadmap, but we'll see. Well, that's answers we definitely need. And uh, I think uh, because as you discover these things, then farmers by doing the right soil health practices are going to be able to, to quantify and, and create higher value that they can receive back uh, for, for the work that they've done. So uh, just just fascinating, all the connections, and we see it, and I'm glad you're taking it out of the anecdotal and, and putting it into the um, uh, scientifically observed. So that, that's fantastic. Glad, glad to hear it. How much fun is it? 
I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot gotta of fun. You've got to be having a blast doing yeah. what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's always probably my favorite part is working with farmers because uh, I, I uh, always learn. I can learn a lot from farmers as a, as a scientist, too, because uh, uh, some of these things that uh, we observe in, in the lab, uh, farmers sort of like, intuitively know these things a little bit, but usually have uh, and then at least are. Uh, sort of on the right direction already, right? And uh, and obviously we need to objectively uh, uh, test these things and, and and verify them. But you can definitely, from the farmer that observes their animals day in day out, observes their land day in day out. As, as a scientist, you can definitely learn from that too, uh, and uh, and and uh, help point, uh, yeah, sort of sort of the roadmap of your research in, in the right direction. Because someone jokingly told me is that all you're doing is verifying our common sense. That's what a farmer told me. And I said, well, I mean, hopefully I'm also sometimes discovering something new and unique that you haven't thought of. But uh, uh, if, if that's my job, verifying common sense, then uh, I, I uh, will, will try to do so. And uh, hopefully, uh, well, we do find some interesting things that uh, maybe are unexpected to, to me and, uh, and, and the farmer. And uh, heck, who knows? I mean, uh, it, it will be very interesting to see what uh, shared metabolites are along, along that uh, soil plant animal human health continuum so yeah that's going to be fascinating that's going to be fascinating well before we depart anything else you want us to um, get in on the episode today uh, no, I think uh, if, if there's one thing to take away from this, I, I think it's uh, as, as a farmer trying to introduce biodiversity as much as possible, uh, mixed crops and, and, and spreading the risk. And there's more research coming out that this may improve yields too. And and sort of our small piece of that is that uh, because I'm, I must admit I'm not a farmer, so uh, uh, please don't take, take my advice uh, for it. But what I can tell you is that these practices do also seem to appear uh improve the nutrient density of the products that are uh, that are produced so i think that's uh, an important thing to uh, and if that also seems to appear to have uh, beneficial effects on yield and and spreading risk and profitability of the farmer because you can often cut back on your chemical bill generally or at least that's what uh, most of the farmers we work with uh, tell me they, they uh, most of their money is made on the money that's not spent so uh, uh, if that uh, also and that has a trickle-down effect, uh, likely on the nutrient density, and then uh, we're trying to verify now uh, whether that has an appreciable effect on our uh, on our health as humans do. I would rather eat a good meal and pay more for it than replace it with pharmaceuticals that I need to write all the ales that I've developed uh, as a result of poor consumption. So I think we can look at, you know, the things that we can do to grow these nutrient-dense foods. And it's so exciting to hear a human health doctor talk about cover crops and soil health and the things that we're working to do on a daily basis. And we just encourage you so much to continue to validate a lot of that because I think, as you had said, you know, farmers see this day to day as they're moving and they're watching their soil change and they're seeing these positive things happen. And so for you to do the work to validate it is is really exciting. You can see we're, we're grinning here uh, throughout this conversation because we're excited about the work that you're doing to, to look at these things. So thank you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And, uh, and uh, of course, this work wouldn't be possible without the support of, uh, of, of far farmers uh, like uh, yourself that uh, really uh, 
yeah, can nourish communities uh, day in and day out. So that's uh, that's very important for us to be connected again with farmers. Well, thank you for the incredible work. We appreciate everything that you're doing and uh, helping us to know what the right thing is to do. And and I've always said, if you tell a farmer uh, what the right thing is to do, they will inherently want to do that. So um, we appreciate all that you're doing to quantify and verify these things to to help really shift how agriculture is done in the United States. So looking forward to the long-term impacts of your work. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. And how exciting is it to see Dr. Van Vliet working together with farmers and growers? Here we go again, breaking down those academic silos of information and working together to solve these challenges. I really appreciate how he said over the next three years, they're looking at that full continuum of soil health, plant health, nutrient density of meat, and human health. We hope you've gained some insight into the research that's happening to discover more about that soil, plant, livestock, and human health connection. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on the links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.